All right. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping. Let me tell you what we're talking about today. So this semester, we have been just a drunk drawer, junk drawer of topics. <laughs> Sorry. I am still a little. That's a joke. A junk drawer of topics. And uh, so uh, we've talked about, started off talking about the doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be human? Why do we have value? Why are we more important than dogs, dolphins, all these other majestic creatures? Then we talked about sin, the doctrine of sin. What happened to mankind? Why is the world broken? Why are we born not only with this inclination to sin, but even the guilt of Adam, that Adam was like an ambassador for humanity. And when he sinned, uh, the whole nation looks bad. And so we talked a little bit about that. And what we've been doing and what we'll be doing doing until we get to July, where when we break from theological equipping, is talking about the beginnings of the doctrine of salvation, what is called soteriology. So we talked about man, we talked about our fall and sin, and now we're talking about how we can be redeemed. And specifically, we're talking about what Christ did to redeem us. What does Christ have to do to purchase our salvation, to earn our salvation for us, to redeem us, to die for our sins? And then next semester, we'll talk about how we get that good stuff. So the end of this semester is, what does Christ do to earn our salvation? Next semester, it's how do we get that? So to the, this semester is all the good things he does. Next semester is how do we get the good stuff? And so, uh, so that's where we'll be going uh, after July. We do break uh, in July from theological equipping, so keep that in mind. But we will start back again in August, and we will also finish out the month of June. And so we've been talking about what Christ has done to earn our salvation. We talked about his righteous life, that Christ doesn't just die for our sins. That would simply make us neutral that he lives the life that we should have lived, that he walks in perfect righteousness so that we can be seen as being perfectly righteous. It's not just that the gospel happens at the end of the gospels when he dies and is raised. The whole thing is the good news. The whole thing is him pushing back what's evil. The whole thing is him living righteously where we have failed. Whereas I'm commanded not to lie, not to lust, not to say words like junk dr drunk drawer, whatever it is, Jesus actually fulfills uh, these commands. And so uh, we talked about that. Then last week, Tim talked about the death of Christ, uh, how Christ's death covers our sins, makes it where we can be forgiven, etc. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about atonement, specifically about theories of atonement, okay? So let me just summarize what we're doing today, okay? Today, we're going to be going over a bunch of heady, kind of academic stuff, but here's the only thing you have to take with you, okay? So this is very, very simple. Ready? Jesus' death does a bunch of stuff. That's it. If someone says, what did you go over in theological equipping? It's simply that. Jesus' death does a bunch of stuff. It's not just one thing. It does a bunch of things. It's kind of like a diamond. When you take a diamond and you hold it up to the light and you turn it, you see different colors, you see different shines, you have cut and carrot and clarity, and I can't remember all the things. I had to buy a diamond for Katie once, she lost it in the pool, but it was great, it was a great experience. And uh, the, the, Jesus' atonement is kind of like that diamond, where you turn it and you can see different facets of it. And so today we're gonna be talking about what some of those different facets are, okay? That's all you have to remember. Jesus' death does a lot of things, okay? And we're gonna talk about what some of those things are today. Let me first give you a definition of atonement. This is kind of a fancy uh, theological term. The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation, okay? So let me just say this. This is really important that you understand this. Your salvation is earned. It's just not earned by you. Your salvation is free to you, but it's not free overall. Somebody had to pay for it, okay? So we need to remember, it's not as though God just winks at our sin and just says, oh, you've broken all my commands. Who cares? I'm loving, so I forgive you. Because God is also just, he has to deal with sin. He has to do something with the evil that we have done, with the dishonoring of his name. And so the atonement 
is how humans and God can be reconciled to have at one uh, how humans can have at one can have atonement, can have this reconciliation in this life, enjoying and being in fellowship with God, despite the fact that we've broken God's commands. So what does Christ do? He lives the life we should have lived, dies on a cross to take our punishment that we deserve, okay? We're saved both by his life and his death, okay? Both by his life and his death. But let's first of all just talk about a few reasons why Jesus had to die for our sins, and then we will spend the rest of the time doing theological nerd things. Does that sound good? Okay, that's what I have planned, so I hope that sounds good. I don't have an alternate. I don't have a plan B or an audible. Okay. Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Why can't God just forgive us? Let's look at a few reasons. Number one, to uphold the justice of God and appease his wrath towards us. Let's go over a few passages. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. This is talking about the, uh, the character of God. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This does not mean that you suffer for your parents' sins. We actually have a blog on this. If you're wondering what does it mean for people to suffer to the third and fourth genera- uh, generation, what is a generational curse? If you know Christ, there is no curse over your life, okay? Christ has become your curse. We have a blog on that if you want more information about it. The point I'm trying to make here is that this text is clear that God can just not acquit the guilty. He can't just say, though you've sinned, who cares? Because he's holy, Okay, he demands justice. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay? So notice that God can't just wink at your sin and just forgive you without some sort of payment or else he's unjust. Romans 3.23-26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared to be righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. That's what propitiation is. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, okay? Number two, why else does Jesus have to die for our sins? To fulfill the scriptures. This has always been God's plan. Mark 14, 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's arrested and then taken into trial. Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Acts 2, what's happening is they're saying, yes, you killed Jesus, the people he's talking to, but ultimately God killed Jesus. Ultimately, that was always the plan for him to die for the sins of mankind. That wasn't a surprise. That wasn't a failure. That has always been the goal. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. As we look at passages, by the way, that talk about fulfilling the scriptures. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So another reason Jesus has to die is to fulfill the scriptures. You'll see in 1 Corinthians where Paul is describing what the gospel is. He'll keep saying, according to the scriptures, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures, these kind of things. The idea is that this is always, this has always been the plan. This is what the Old Testament had been talking about. Number three, to show God's love for us, okay? Let me read these passages, then I want to say something pastoral. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. What is that in context? The death of his son. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that why we were still sinners Christ died for us. John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse at a football game when people are holding up the signs. 
Although now there's a new Matthew 7, a do not judge guy that's always holding up a Matthew 7 sign. But it always used to be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. Now let me just say something about this. The way you know that God loves you has nothing to do with how you feel. We have a tendency to think that when we're doing a bad job, we're failing, we're sinning, we're struggling, God must love us less. And when we're crushing it, we're evangelizing, we're reading our Bible, we're being super Christians, God must love us more. What the Bible's going to say is that one of the things that the death of Christ does is the the cross is where God puts his money where his mouth is when he says that he loves you. You know with objective certainty that God loves you because he's already proved it. He's already demonstrated it. It's already true. Your feelings will constantly change. We as creatures are mutable. We're changeable. There are days we feel more loved and days we feel less loved. Your feelings are important, but listen to me, they are not true all the time, okay? The way you know God loves you is because of the cross. So on the days where you're struggling to feel God's love or you feel like he's mad at you, you shouldn't just try to conjure up more feelings. What you should do is focus on the cross. That's the proof. That's objective. Your feelings are subjective. They can change all the time. But what's objective is that God loves you as demonstrated by the cross, okay? Demonstrated by sending Christ to die on the cross. Now, number three, And by that, I mean number four, numbers, who cares? Number four, to reconcile us to God, okay? To reconcile us to God. By the way, I could put a bunch of different passages here. I'm just giving you a few as an example. These are not like exhaustive. There's not like only one passage that talks about God reconciling us to himself. But I wanna read this one here, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ dies to reconcile God and humanity. Our sin is seen as belonging to Christ, and his righteousness is seen as belonging to us. That's what it means at the end here, where he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, okay? So there's this great exchange that goes on on the cross. And then number five, to conquer sin, death, and the devil. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, okay? So when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? Is he just some sort of wise prophet like Gandhi? Is he just some sort of good moral teacher? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us explicitly why Jesus came, and it's to do war with the devil. It's to destroy the devil. It's to undo the wickedness that had entered the world. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, okay? So my only point in this first section, again, is simply this. What is the point of the lesson today? The atonement does a bunch of stuff. Atonement equals good stuff. That's all you have to remember. It's very simple. You see, you can make theology hard, but sometimes it's very simple. Now, I want to read you a, uh, a quote here. Uh, it's about a paragraph, so uh, I'm going to read it. It comes from a guy named Greg Allison, who's a uh, historical theology guy. He's actually a professor at Southern Seminary. He says this about the atonement, which I find to be very, very helpful. He says this, the New Testament presents the death of Christ as a multifaceted diamond. By the way, I didn't take that from him. I already thought the atonement was a diamond, but let's keep going. One facet of the gym is expiation. 
Christ's sacrifice removed the liability to punishment and condemnation under which sinful people suffer. A second facet is propitiation. Christ's death appeased the wrath of God against his sinful creatures. Let me pause real quick. Expiation means your sin is gone. It's washed away. Propitiation means God's wrath is appeased. The two go together, but those are what those two different terms mean. Expiation, sin is gone. Propitiation, wrath is gone. Okay, that's how you think of that. The gym's third facet is redemption. The death of Christ is the payment he offered to God to buy captives out of the slave market of sin. The fourth facet of the diamond is reconciliation. Christ's death has taken sinners from being enemies of God to being his friends and children. The fifth facet is Christ the victor. Christus victor is what that's called in Latin. Through his death, Christ achieved ultimate victory over Satan and the demons. A sixth facet is example. Christ's death is both a demonstration of God's love and a model of obedience and suffering for believers to follow. Notice, by the way, that we are commanded to suffer because Christ suffered. There's a lot of theology out there that's kind of name it and claim it that would say God doesn't want you to suffer. The Bible says you're going to suffer, and if you never suffer, you don't know Christ. If you want something you can name and claim, it's this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer, okay? A final facet of Christ's work is exchange. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or credited, it's seen as belonging to us, to the account of those who believe in him, and their sin is imputed to him. If you think about it, and this is the analogy that's uh, used a lot in the Reformation, if you think of it like a bank account, okay? If I take someone like Jeff Ashley, who just has millions and millions and millions of dollars in his bank account, and you take someone like me, who is in the red, okay? What happens on the cross, if he's Jesus in this scenario, is he gets the red, he gets my debt, and I get his millions and millions and millions of dollars. I didn't actually earn it. Jeff did because of his eloquent preaching and his world tours and all the things that he does. He's earned it. I get it, though, as given to me even though I didn't earn it. That's what's happening with the cross. Jesus is perfectly righteous. I'm sinful. My sin is imputed to him on the cross, and it is judged. It is paid for. This is how you know God's not mad at you if you're a Christian. Your sin's already been covered. There's no double jeopardy with God. The gavel is already slammed down, okay? And we are seen as having Christ's righteousness. We are seen as in Christ, okay? Seen as in Christ. Now, I just wanted to start that. That was a little, uh, little teaser, just talk a little bit about atonement. I want to spend the rest of our time, though, talking about what are called theories of atonement, okay? Theories of atonement. Now, Throughout church history, here's what people agree on, and here's where there's disagreement. Ready? Here's the agreement. Jesus somehow brings us salvation. Anybody, does that blow your mind? Anybody that, that you've never heard that before? Okay. I thought you, I, I figured you all had. Jesus saves us. That's not up for debate. That's not up for debate in church history. Here's the debate in church history. How does Jesus save us? Everyone agrees he's fully God and fully man. That's part of the orthodox biblical historical church. Everybody agrees that he dies for our sin. Everybody agrees that he's raised from the dead bodily. That's not up for debate. The question is, how does that bring about salvation? Why does a guy dying on the cross bring about salvation for mankind? What does his death do? And so what you have throughout church history is you have all these debates in different ways that people want to talk about what Christ has done on the cross. So just to summarize, all we're learning today, the atonement does a bunch of stuff, and all you have to remember as we go through these different facets of church history is simply this. Everyone agrees that Jesus saves us. That's not the issue. The question is, how does he save us? What does his cross do? How does shedding blood get rid of sin? How does shedding blood fight the devil? What's going on with that? Okay? And what you're going to find is this. Let me just simplify this whole debate for you. 
Jesus' death does a bunch of things, which is why it's silly sometimes when theologians will fight each other to say, what's the only thing his death does? So sometimes what you'll have is you'll have theologians fighting each other saying the only thing that Jesus' death does is this. And the reason that's dumb is because we've already seen that, biblically, the cross does a bunch of things. There's a bunch of facets of atonement, okay? So I want to walk through a bunch of these things. I'll explain my weird uh, chart here with all the words that you can't read in just a second. But we're going to go through these different uh, ideas of what Christ's death does. So let's go through some different theories of atonement. The first is what is called penal substitution, Penal substitution, okay? The word penal means like a penalty. If you think of like a penal colony where people are punished or like a prison or something like that. So it has to do with the idea of punishment. And then the word substitution has to do with Christ taking our place. So what penal substitutionary atonement is, is that Christ is the substitute for us. We deserve to die. I've rebelled against God. I deserve to get my head cut off. And instead, what Jesus does is he pushes me off the chopping block and says, swing the ax, okay? So there's these two elements with penal substitution. The first is that he's our substitute. The second is he's our substitute for what? For punishment. For punishment. He takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Okay? So penal substitution is that Jesus died as humanity's substitute to appease the wrath of God. Okay? Now, this is the big view of the atonement that's held by the reformers. John Calvin specifically, but also Martin Luther held a version of this. So within a kind of reformed tradition, which is where Parkway finds ourselves, uh, this is a, uh, a big facet of our history, if you will, that Jesus died as humanity's substitute to appease the wrath of God. Let me give you a John Calvin quote, and then I'll explain this and unpack it a little bit more. As a pure and stainless mediator, he, that's Christ, is by his holiness to reconcile us to God. But God's righteous curse bars our access to him, and God in his capacity as judge is angry toward us. Hence, an expiation, remember a sacrifice that takes away sin, must intervene in order that Christ as priest may obtain God's favor toward us and appease his wrath. There's propitiation. Thus Christ, to perform this office, had to, become forward, uh, had to come forward with a sacrifice. The priestly office belongs to Christ alone because by the sacrifice of his death, he blotted out our own guilt and made satisfaction for our sins. Okay? Let me read you two passages about this, again, just as an example, and then I'll give you an analogy. Romans 3, 25 through 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Notice that this text is saying part of the reason Jesus had to die was to show that God is just in maintaining and upholding his standard of justice. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Notice the substitution. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay? Let me give you some examples of what I mean by penal substitution. Imagine for a second that there is a serial killer and this serial killer only kills children, trying to make it as extreme as possible. Okay, there's a serial killer. This serial killer only kills children. This serial killer is on trial. What if the judge were to say, are you sorry? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, if you're sorry, I want to show leniency because I'm a merciful judge, so you're free to go. Off with you, back into society. What's the problem with that? There's no judge. Is that judge kind and merciful? Yes, the judge is very kind and merciful. Is that judge just? The judge is not just, okay? 
Because this person has broken a law, in fact, some very serious laws multiple times, and so the judge can't just act like that's no big deal and can't just act like love and mercy can be given. By the way, with God, there is never love without justice as well. Every time God delivers, there's always this act of justice as well. God is holy, loving, and holy just at the same time. So the judge can't just let this serial child killer go because though that would be loving, that would not be just. Why can God just not let you go? Why can't God just say you're forgiven and just say, you know what, I'm God, I can do whatever I want, you're forgiven? Because God has bound himself by his own justice in commands in the Old Testament, like I will by no means clear the guilty, to demand a punishment when sin has been done. God must do it. God has put that binding on himself to do it, okay? So what happens in salvation is we are like that murderer. God can't just forgive us or else he's unjust, He can condemn us. That would be just. But what he does is the judge says, you're guilty, so I can't let you go free. Punishment has to be given. But what I will do is I will step off the dock. I will will take your place, and I will go to death row for you. That's what Christ does, okay? We're not just forgiven. Punishment has to be made. But God the Father punishes God the Son on our behalf. That's what's going on. Christ is taking our place. It's very powerful. It's amazing to think not only this judge is so kind that he would forgive us, but that this judge would come and go on death row for us is amazing. That's what's going on with the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, okay? It is very much at the heart of what we believe on atonement. Now, I'll give you another illustration. I had a professor who taught evangelism, and one day he did this with his kids. So he had, he had three or four kids, and uh, his oldest son had disobeyed. And so he went to his son and he said, son, you disobeyed me. And so now you're going to get a spanking. And the son's like, no, 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 I don't want a spanking. And so the professor said, okay, listen, I don't want to spank you. I want to let you go free. So somebody though has to get a spanking. So what I want you to do is I want you to give me a spanking. And so he took off his belt, gave it to his son. And he's like, I love you, son. Do it. And his kid's like, no, daddy, I don't want to. He's like, do it. And he did it. And the belt came out and the buckle came around and like hit him in the hip. And he's like, ah, traumatized the kid. The kid ended up not being a believer. Here's my point. Here's my point. Don't do that to your kids, by the way. That is psychologically weird. What was the point he was trying to make with good intentions? He was trying to make the point that punishment has to be meted out. Someone will take the punishment either Christ or you, but there will be punishment, okay? There will be punishment. That's penal substitution. Number two, ransom theory. By the way, let me pause real quick and talk about why I've drawn this chart. We're going to go over a few different views of the atonement today. Let me explain what this chart means, okay? When theologians talk about the atonement, they divide it into three bigger categories because Christ's death does what? A bunch of stuff, okay? So the first is what's called the classic view, okay? So you'll see certain things we talk about fit within this classic thing. The classic view is drama-directed. Here's what I mean by that. It focuses on the bigger story of Scripture. It focuses on the drama, the, uh, the story of Christ beating the devil. It focuses on the story of God crushing his enemies and reconciling people to himself. It's very story-focused. That's what I mean by saying it's drama-directed. Another category that people fit certain views of the atonement is on, uh, I'm sorry, another category that people fit different views of the atonement in is uh, an objective category. It's God-directed, 
Okay? It's God-directed. What we're saying in this case is something objective actually happens. I go from being seen as a sinner to being seen as a saint. That's something objective. Okay? It's God-directed. And then the last one is some of the views of the atonement fit into what's called a subjective category. I mean, it's human-directed. The, the cross affects me, right? So I'm supposed to live as Christ lived. So when I see that Christ dies on a cross, I'm supposed to realize I'm supposed to lay down my life. I'm supposed to put sin to death. I'm supposed to do all these other things. So some, of the, some theories of atonement focus on us, okay? So some theories, just as a summary of the atonement, focus on the big story. Some theories of the atonement focus on a God-directed objectiveness of what's happening on the cross. And then some of the theories focus on a human-directed subjectivity, something that the cross is supposed to inspire in us, okay? And so uh, this first view, where does it fit? Penal substitution. It's objective, right? Because we are seen as sinners. Because Christ takes our wrath, we are no longer seen as sinners. And so God, it's God-directed. God sees us as righteous. God sees us as perfect. It's objective. It's, it's true in the cosmos, okay? That's what we mean by that, by talking about penal substitution. Okay, now let's talk about the second one. You ready? Another theory of the atonement is what is called ransom theory. Ransom theory. This is the idea that Jesus died as a ransom for humanity. Jesus died as a ransom for humanity. Now, let me tell you the main way, though, this is interpreted in the early church, okay? This one's uh, a little weird. Many early church fathers, the big one in this category is a guy named Origen, Many church fathers thought that the ransom was paid to Satan. So in the ransom theory, as it's originally formulated, this is the idea. When mankind sins, the devil owns us. And so Christ has to die to buy us back from the devil. He has to die as a ransom to the devil to redeem mankind back to God. Okay? Now there is a very famous children's book and children's movie by a certain man named Clive Staples Lewis. C.S. Lewis. And uh, it actually promotes a view of the ransom theory of the atonement. What is that book or movie? Oh, whoa. Uh, yes. <laughs> the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia. I haven't seen it in a long time, so let me just do my best to summarize. It's going to be awful. Basically, there's this witch who's creepy looking and wintry, and one of the kids sins. Peter. Is that his name? Who cares? A kid sins. And then... The kids belong to who? That wintry white witch of the south. I don't remember. So this lion, Jesus, Aslan, has to die. Why? To ransom the kids back from the devil. To ransom the kids back from the white witch. Okay? That is the classic ransom theory of the atonement in popular culture. Okay? So that, that, is, uh, that is an idea that you get a lot in the early church. Uh, there's a guy named Gregory of Nyssa, and uh, he talks a lot about what is called the fishhook idea. This is the idea, that Jesus' humanity is like bait, and his deity is like a fishhook in the bait. And so the devil's like, because humanity belongs to me, because all of mankind sinned, I get to damn and kill everybody. Ha, 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 ha. So that's how the devil sounds. And he sees this bait floating in the water. And he's like, ah, Jesus, he's fully human. So he, he bites onto that, and all of a sudden, he's hooked by the deity of Christ, right? Because you can't kill Christ's deity. And so there's this idea that uh, God's greatest act of redemption was basically tricking the devil. The devil tricked humanity, and in the ransom theory, the fishhook idea, God tricks the devil. So it's like, okay, I'll send Jesus to die for mankind, so then he dies for mankind, and then God raises him. He pulls a fast one on the devil, and the devil doesn't get to take home that bait. 
That's kind of the idea of the early church, okay? Now, let me ask, so first of all, let me ask this question. Is penal substitution that we talked about a second ago, is that a biblical idea? Yes, absolutely. Is the ransom theory a biblical idea? A little bit. What do you mean by a little bit? Exactly right. Exactly right. Listen, let me be clear. Jesus does die as a ransom to redeem mankind, but the payment is made to God, not to the devil. Yes, there is a sense in which those who don't know Christ are under the power of the prince of the power of the air, the devil, but the ransom is paid to God. It's God who we owe, right? Our problem, let me be clear, your problem if you're lost is not the devil. Your problem is God. Your problem is that you fall under the wrath of an almighty, infinite, trinitarian God. And your only hope is that you can be redeemed, that that wrath can be paid for, that you don't have to bear that wrath. So the ransom theory is true, but the ransom is paid to God, which other church fathers mention. There are other church fathers that would say, I like your ransom idea, that's biblical, but you're paying it to the wrong person, okay? But the ransom is, uh, is paid to God. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to, quote, give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, okay? Now, this ransom theory view fits under this classical model of the atonement. Why? Because it has to do with big picture. It has to do with the drama of scripture. It has to do with big story of God fighting the devil, okay? The way God fights the devil is to pay, man, or to pay Christ as a ransom to the devil for humanity. That's the idea of the uh, ransom theory, okay? That's why it's right here, ransom, okay? You guys good so far? Do we need a break and do some calisthenics? Stretch out a little bit? Good? Okay. Number three, another theory of the atonement, the recapitulation theory, the recapitulation theory. Christ made atonement by living the life Adam should have lived, but he succeeded where Adam failed, okay? It was really made popular by a church father named Irenaeus, okay? Let me read it again. Christ made atonement by living the life Adam should have lived, but succeeding where he failed. Irenaeus says this, for as by the disobedience of the one man who was originally formed from virgin soil, the many were made sinners and forfeited life, so was it necessary that by the obedience of the one man who was originally born from a virgin, many should be justified and receive salvation. Romans 5, 18 through 19. We've been talking about this, by the way, a lot in our Roman series. This whole, everyone's either in Adam or in Christ. They're either in the sinful man or the God man. And uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19 says this, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Christ's life, death, resurrection, etc., leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, okay? So this recapitulation theory is simply, so when we say the atonement does a bunch of stuff, and penal substitution takes away God's wrath, and the ransom theory, it pays a ransom to God. Uh, in this view, the recapitulation view, what Christ is doing is he is the anti-Adam. He is the Adam that Adam should have been. Adam was like an ambassador for humanity, and when Adam sinned, it ruined it for everybody in Adam, which is everybody born. But Christ, the God-man, the one person who is fully God and fully man, two distinct natures, one person, when he lives righteously on our behalf and we repent and we trust in him, we move from being in Adam to being in Christ, and what's true of him is true of us. He's perfect, we're seen as perfect. He's loved, we're seen as loved. He's spotless, we're seen as spotless. So everyone is born into Adam, 
They are born again into Christ, okay? But that's the recapitulation theory. Now, I've put recapitulation kind of crossing the spectrum between the classic and the objective views, and here's why. One, it has to do with the big story of Scripture, that Jesus is the better Adam, he's the better Abraham, he's the better Moses, he's the better David, he's the better Israel, he's the better etc. So there is something about the whole biblical story. But I've also put it under objective because Christ is objectively good on our behalf and that is objectively seen as belonging to us through faith. So that one kind of spans across both, uh, both categories there. In case you were wondering, what is the Rika view of the atonement? And what is the pitulation view? That's one view, all right? That's one thing, okay? Number four, the satisfaction theory. Satisfaction theory. Christ died to restore God's honor because humans had sinned against him. Christ died to restore God's honor because humans had sinned against him. The main guy that puts this theory forth is a guy named Anselm. Do you guys remember where else in this class we've heard about St. Anselm? It's a long time ago when we were doing Doctrine of God. He has a very famous proof for the existence of God. Who remembers what it is? We have failed you, and I will be sending in my resignation letter. Uh, Anselm is famous for what is called the ontological argument. This idea that you can prove God's existence just by the definition of what we mean when we say God. That God is a necessarily existent being. You could exist or not exist. The world would have been just fine if you were never born. Sorry. That's not true with with God existing. God necessarily exists. There's no world without God. There's nothing without God. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because of God. Okay? If you want to know more about that argument, we have that lesson on the existence of God that's online. But that's... uh, that's, uh, Uh, Anselm, he's brilliant, he's a genius, he is smarter than all of us, Uh, but the view of the atonement that he supports is this idea that Christ died to restore God's honor that mankind had profaned in our sin, okay? Let me tell you why this is important. Anselm lives in the Middle Ages. He lives within a feudal system where you have lords and you have uh, serfs that serve the lords, and so he very much lives in a society that's very hierarchical, okay? So he knows if you're a serf, and you offend a Lord, you've not just broken a law, you've not just broken a command, you've now dishonored them, all right? You've dishonored them. So if you go up and you interrupt a wedding, people will be upset. But if you try to interrupt the royal wedding, you've dishonored England, all right? And so what, uh, what Anselm's gonna say is that we've dishonored God in our sin. Let me give you an example. If I steal 10 chickens from you, I can't just give you back 10 chickens, because there's been the dishonoring. There hasn't just been, I've taken this and now I've given it back to you. I've wronged you as a person. I've dishonored you. I've, I can't just, ma- I mean, this is why in the Bible, when you steal from somebody in the Old Testament, you pay them back four times the amount. You have to go above and beyond because you stole, you're not just giving it back. You've also dishonored them. You've profaned them. You have caused a rift between you and them. And so the big focus that Anselm will talk about is that Christ died to bring the honor back to God that we had uh, profaned, Okay. Let me give you a few quotes from Anselm. Everyone who sins is under an obligation to repay to God the honor which he has violently taken from him. And this is the satisfaction which every sinner is obliged to give to God. It is a necessary consequence, therefore, that either the honor which has been taken away should be repaid or punishment should follow. Also, he says, it is not fitting. You'll get that language a lot from Anselm when he talks about the atonement. What is, what is and is not fitting? It is not fitting for God to forgive a sin out of mercy alone without any restitution of the honor taken away from him, okay? So, penal substitution, 
Christ takes away God's wrath, okay? Uh, ransom theory, Christ dies as a ransom to buy back humanity from the wrath of God. Satisfaction, uh, Jesus replays the role of Adam and succeeds where Adam has failed. Here, with this, uh, with this view, I'm sorry, the recapitulation is where he replays the role of Adam, succeeds where he fails. In the satisfaction view, the idea is that he is getting the honor. He's, he's uh, honoring God, whereas we have profaned God. Now, if this is the question you're asking, how is this view different than the penal substitution view? How is this view different than the penal substitution view? Here's the answer. The penal substitution view is more about God's justice, and this one is more about God's honor. The penal substitution view is about God pouring out his wrath. This is more about God getting his honor, if you want to say it that way, okay? Now, there are a few, uh, few passages that would talk about Christ's obedience honoring God. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, unlike Adam, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his acts were righteous. He's the God-man. No one can pay the penalty for mankind other than the God-man, other than one who's eternal. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, talking about his death, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So both of these passages are talking about how Christ has gone out of his way to honor God because mankind has tried to profane God in our sin. By the way, when I talk about profaning God or honoring God, I don't mean God changes. You can't take away God's honor in that sense. He's always infinitely honorable. What I mean is that mankind treats him like he's not honorable. God doesn't change though, okay? So when I say give God glory, that doesn't mean he's lacking glory. What I mean is you need to recognize that he's not lacking glory. <laughs> That's what I mean, okay? Number five. Oh, okay, by the way, just to go over all these things. Is this one biblical, penal substitution? Yes, yes it's objective, okay, also. Is the ransom view biblical if you know that the ransom's paid to God, not Satan? Yes. Is the uh, recapitulation view biblical? Yes. Is the satisfaction view biblical? Okay, notice that's objective. It's about honoring God objectively, okay? So all these are biblical so far. Now I'm going to give you another one. This one is called the moral example theory. The moral example theory. That Jesus died to demonstrate God's love for us. That's the first part of this. There are two parts to it. The other part is that Jesus died to provide a moral example for us to follow. Let me read that one again. That Jesus died to demonstrate God's love to, for us. The second part of that is that Jesus died to provide a moral example for us to follow. The big proponent of the moral theory is a guy named Peter Abelard. He's a famous theologian in the Middle Ages, Peter Abelard, okay? He says this, Christ died for us in order to show how great was his love for humanity and to prove that love is the essence of Christianity. Prove that love is the essence of Christianity. Now, this is a view of the atonement that is different than the other ones that we've gone over because this one is subjective. Notice what he's saying. And these other ones were saying Christ died to get rid of God's wrath. Christ died to replay the role of Adam. Christ died to purchase you back. They're objective. In this one, though, what we're saying is Christ died to do something in you so that you might feel the love of God. You might see the love of God. It might change the way you act. If Christ, being God, is willing to be obedient. How could you not be obedient? Do you see how this one's different? This is a view of the atonement that is subjective. Christ's death does something that's human-directed opposed to Christ's death doing something that's God-directed, okay? Let me ask you this question. Is this one biblical? Yes, this one is biblical. 1 Peter 2.21 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So yes, it is true that one of the things the atonement does, because by the way, it does a bunch of things, one of the things that it does is it provides an example to where you know the love of God and to where you realize you're supposed to be obedient to. Okay? That's what it does. Now let me tell you the problem with this view. Bum, bum, bum. The problem with this view is when people think that that's all that it does. A lot of the people that end up holding this moral view, and by the way, it's sometimes called the exemplary view, that Christ died to show us how we should live. You know who held the exemplary view? Pelagius, the guy that thought you earned God's salvation. Yeah, I heard a boo. When we say Pelagius at Parkway, we boo. Arius, Pelagius, all the heretics, they're the worst, okay? If you're wondering, why is theology so hard and why do we have to use these big words? Because heretics, They come in, and we have to sharpen our swords and figure out what we mean. We could just love Jesus if there wasn't heretics. But anyway, we have to do theology and and use big words. Pelagius held that view. Christ didn't die for your sins because Pelagius didn't think you were born sinful. Instead, he showed you how to live. He just showed you how to live. So it's true that Christ's death does show us that God loves us. It's true that it provides an example where we should be obedient, where we should lay down our life for our friends. But that's not all that it does, okay? For whatever reason, when people drift left theologically, they almost always drift into the moral or exemplary view of the atonement. There was a heretical group called the Socinians who held this view. The father of theological liberalism, a guy named Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. There's a good name. If any of you ladies are pregnant and you're needing a good name for your kid, how about four weird German names? Uh, The father of theological liberalism held this view. You'll see this view anytime somebody wants to use the name of Jesus to push some sort of left-leaning social or political view, right? Jesus died on a cross, so we should not, uh, so we should give up our guns or something like that because we need to be peaceful, despite the fact that we're not talking about the government rights. All anyway, people will, will drift in that direction, okay? And so, uh, so the moral view is not wrong. The exemplary view is not wrong. It's just incomplete. It's good as long as you have these other things, but when you try to make Christ's death only that, where he's just showing us to love and how to be squishy and who cares about God's wrath, he's just inspiring us. Jesus is just a great actor and uh, the play of redemption is what inspires us to live morally. If that's all you think the atonement is, you have drifted pretty far from Christianity, okay? Now, I want to mention this real quick. I, d- I didn't put this on your, uh, your handout because it's, uh, it's not a huge thing to know, but I do want to mention it real quick. You see how this view is subjective, right? It inspires us to live morally. It inspires us to know God's love. There's a similar view called the governmental theory of the atonement. It's by a guy named Hugo Grotius. And basically what he says is that the reason Christ had to die was to demonstrate that God is holy and that there must be punishment for a sin, but the punishment actually isn't for you. Christ doesn't actually die to take God's wrath towards you in the governmental view. Christ dies as a demonstration that God is serious about sin, okay? It's supposed to inspire you to say, I should probably follow God's law because he's willing to send Christ to the cross for sin. He's not actually pouring out his wrath on Christ for my sin, but he is saying that uh, it's kind of a public demonstration of God's justice instead of a private or individual demonstration of God's justice. But the reason I talk about the governmental view is just to say this. The moral view would say Christ's death shows us God's love and it shows us that we should live morally. The governmental view says Christ's death shows us God's justice, okay? But they're both mainly demonstrations, not really objectively doing something, okay? The uh, governmental view, by the way, is the view held by most Methodists, most of of those in the Wesleyan tradition. Okay, lastly, we're almost out of time. 
Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Okay? Jesus dies to defeat the devil as well as sin and death. Okay? Jesus dies to defeat the devil as well as sin and death. You have this idea in the early church. The uh, major proponent of this, uh, this view, the guy that's really known for it, is a guy named Gustav Aulin. Uh, and let me explain what the Christus Victor view is. Okay, let me read you some passages and then I'll explain it. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a, a Jewish idiom for demons. Ju- uh, rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay? Here's what the Christus Victor view is going to say. The enemies of mankind are sin, death, the law, demonic forces, etc. They enslave us as humans. The atonement breaks this enslavement because it forgives sin, fulfills the law, removes the right that death has to claim us, and shows that the devil has been defeated. Okay? So the focus on the Christus Victor view is this. Christ's death is not primarily just about redeeming humanity. It's about God getting victory over his enemies namely the devil, sin, and death, okay? So again, the atonement does a bunch of stuff, but one of the big things that it's doing is God is reconciling the world to himself. The story in the gospel is all about God. This gospel of the kingdom is about God. We get to play a small part in that story because he redeems sinners, but he's the the focus. He's the subject. He's who's important, okay? The atonement is not primarily about us. It's about the glory of God. And so what the Christus Victor view, that Latin term just means Christ the victor, Christ the winner, What that means is, is that Christ, through his death, has defeated the devil because it's forgiven mankind, and that's what allows the devil to reign. Uh, He's fulfilled the law, so the law can no longer enslave us, the Old Testament law, because Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. Uh, It means that uh, the resurrection shows that death has been defeated, and one day those of us in Christ will be raised. In fact, everyone will be raised. Those in Christ will be raised to new life, and those uh, not in Christ will be raised to judgment. But that's the idea of the Christus Victor view. So let me draw a little something on the board, and then I'm going to have the Reverend Dr. Jeff Ashley come up, and we'll do a little Q&A. Let me erase this real quick. Sorry. Pray amongst yourselves. Wait for it. Okay. So what does the atonement do? A bunch of things. Now, when theologians debate and try to make the atonement only one thing, they've gone awry. So here's where most theologians debate. Why did I give you a bunch of different theories of the atonement? Because this is really the question theologians are asking. Which one of these models is the most important? Which one of these models of atonement is central? Most of them will not say it's only one and nothing else. Most of them will say it's all these things, but which ones are primary and which ones are secondary? Which ones are primary and which ones are secondary? So of those different models of the atonement that we looked at, Biblically, when you think through the story of Scripture, which of those models is central? They're all true. We've already seen they're all true. They're all biblical. I've included Scripture with all of them. Which ones, though, are primary and which ones, though, are secondary? Let me give you my view. If you were to draw two circles, I'll just use this one black in here as well, okay? My view is that the primary and biggest uh, emphasis in the Bible on atonement is Christus Victor. I think that it makes more sense to say God is primarily about crushing his enemies and getting glory first, and the way he does that, though, is by sending Christ to die for humanity. So if I were to draw two circles, I'd put this one as Christus Victor. And right in the heart of that, I would draw another circle, 
and I would label this one as penal substitution. So when theologians debate and talk about what's the biggest thing Christ is doing, yes, we agree he's doing all these things, but what's central? I think Christus Victor is the big story. God is ultimately about getting God's glory, period. That's why I think that's the biggest one. But the way he does that, the way he gets glory, the way he defeats his enemies, the way he crushes the devil is through sending Christ to bear the wrath of mankind, okay? It is by penal substitution. So I think Christus Victor is the bigger story, but when it comes to our personal salvation, I think the focus is on penal substitution. Those other things are true. We could make more circles in here. We could draw a circle of satisfaction, restoring God's honor. We could draw a circle of moral example and talk about how we know that God loves us and we therefore should live likewise, etc. But I think those are the biggest ones in that order. I think Christus Victor is probably the primary theological idea of atonement. And then I think us being reconciled and ransomed to God uh, is, is uh, and God's wrath being appeased towards us is kind of the second one. So... Those are my thoughts. Jeff is going to come up with mic in hand, and we're going to do a little Q&A. By the way, as a little, uh, a little note, if you're wondering, what about limited atonement? Okay? One of the things that we talk about sometimes in uh, theological circles is limited atonement. We'll talk about that in the new semester. A little teaser trailer. I think our first class, actually, in August is on what's called limited atonement. So we'll talk about that later. Today was just theories of atonement. Questions? Questions?